the first year that I entered the marathon, I mean, there was three people, you know, and with the amount of people in Manitoba that are, uh, you know, paraplegics or quadriplegics, uh, you know, I just felt like that was a, like a horrible representation of the community. That was Shane Hartjay, and this is episode 70 of the Inspired Souls podcast. Hi, I'm Carolyn, and I'm a roadrunner. And I'm Kim, and I'm a trail runner. Welcome to our podcast, where we bring the communities of trail and road running together and explore the parallels between running and life. Shane Hartjay is an entrepreneur that has run several successful for-profit organizations and is the executive director of the Winnipeg-based nonprofit organization, First Steps Wellness Centre. First Steps Wellness Centre specializes in rehabilitation for people with neuromuscular disorders where they help their clients regain function through the use of leading-edge intensive exercise-based rehabilitation programs. They provide intensive activity-based therapy for people with spinal cord injuries and associated disorders. Shane identified a need for a center like First Steps after he experienced a spinal cord injury of his own in 2016, when he broke his back at the age of 41 in a motocross accident and became a paraplegic. Shane talks to us about what it was like experiencing such a drastic shift in how he lived every aspect of his life, as well as how he decided to turn what could have seemed like a failure into an opportunity when he had to close his business and saw a need to serve people with neuromuscular disorders in Winnipeg. Since his spinal cord injury, Shane has kept moving, and he continues to travel and snowmobile. And he has completed the Manitoba Wheelchair Marathon for three consecutive years. He hopes to raise awareness for both the First Steps Wellness Centre, as well as the possibilities in competitive sport for para-athletes in events like the marathon. He needs more competitors. As you will hear me share in this episode, my brother became a paraplegic in a dirt bike accident when he was 13 years old. Shane's story resonates so deeply with me, and my brother's injury has shaped how I've lived my life ever since his accident. If you have two good legs that work, be grateful and use them. We hope that you will be inspired to keep moving in any way you can as you listen to our conversation with Shane. All right, Shane, welcome to the Inspired Souls podcast. We're happy to have you with us. Thank you very much for having me. I am really, really looking forward to this conversation. And I know Carolyn is too, because we've actually talked quite a bit about having somebody with a disability or para-athlete on the podcast. And I don't think I've ever mentioned it on the podcast before, but I have a brother who actually had a dirt bike accident. I know yours was motocross, and you'll tell us more about that as we get into the podcast. But he had an accident when he was a teenager and is now a paraplegic. And that largely influenced the direction that my professional career took, as well as the way I approach life um, (laughs) in the ultra way that I do. So I think it's really important to recognize that there um, are people who have challenges out there that not many of us do and talk about all the things you've been through, what you've learned from it and how you've inspired others. So how's that for an introduction? Well, well, I'm looking forward to sharing. Yeah. So without further ado, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Uh, Well, I'm 47 years old. I'm born and raised in Winnipeg. I've been self-employed for the majority of my adult life. So I started working for myself, uh, my first business when I was around 21 years old. 
I've been riding dirt bikes. I kind of grew up in the country. So I got into the dirt bike thing when I was pretty young and started racing when I was in my early twenties. It's kind of when I was old enough to be able to afford a dirt bike and a truck at the same time. Uh, <laughs> and then, uh, yeah. And then I, I raced pretty much every year until I was about 33. I kind of retired just with injuries and things along those lines. There's lots of other other injuries that have, uh, that I had occurred, um, along the way. And then I sort of started playing hockey on an amateur level. I learned how to, I guess the first time I put on equipment in skates and played on a rink, I was like 35 years old. So I did a bunch of power skating classes and took up sort of hockey as my side. Um, uh, I guess my athletic, you know, to keep myself in shape. And, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. And then when I was 41, I had a, I, I've, thought it'd be a good idea to get a dirt bike again and just do some training. And I'd been playing so much hockey. I wanted a bit of a, a break from that. So I got myself a dirt bike and about 16 hours into that spring, I ended up having a little accident and broke a, a pretty small bone. Apparently it's pretty important. I found out after. So yeah, and that's kind of what's inside us... the bone was even yeah, more important. Yeah, yeah <laughs> apparently. Yeah. So that kind of takes us to where we are now. So. And what year was this Shane? Uh, that was in 2016. Okay. So five, six years ago yeah. or so. 41 years five, old? Five and a half. Yeah. I was 41 at the time. So. Okay. And yeah. the, the small bone you broke, so <laughs> you hinted to it, but it was T7, correct? T7, correct. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. So for our listeners that don't know, T7 sits roughly at the bottom edge of your shoulder blade of yeah. your scapula, kind of mid chest level. And so, um, how did that affect your function, Shane? Well, I'm a very complete injury. So basically, like from the moment that the injury occurred to this day, nothing has changed for me. So I, I have no more sensation or, or motion or any of that. So nothing's really changed. So my my injury is what they classify as a AJA complete. So that's like basically you got zero going on. So unfortunately, you know, a lot of people it changes for as your swelling goes down and as healing occurs, you'll get some sensation back, some motion back, some feeling and whatnot. But uh, I like to do things proper. So we, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, we, we did a good job of it. So, but you are fully functional in your, in your arms and your yeah, absolutely. Up, yeah. 100%. Above your chest. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. Both hands, both arms. Yeah. Both very shoulders. fortunate to have that. Yeah. yeah. And did you have any kind of head injury involved as well with the accident or was, did the helmet do its job? No, the head injury was probably prior buying a dirt bike at 41, <laughs> I think. But, From the uh, hockey. Yeah. So that might've been, it might've been earlier in the season, but no, I, I came out of that one pretty clean. So. Yeah. yeah. So, so this is extremely significant. You've lived your, like a, a good portion of your adult life. You were into your career, you were active, athletic, 41 years old, and just at the snap of the fingers, your entire life changed. Can you kind of just tell us a little bit more about maybe even on the mental, emotional level, kind of what you had to go through to, to deal with the realities that laid ahead of you? Well, I was, uh, I guess, fortunate in the sense that I was self-employed. So, you know, I, at the time I was running a res- renovation business, construction company. Uh, I had a good crew of guys with me and I had, you know, we were at a position with a couple of jobs that we had that they were kind of uh, ready to move forward without me being on site a lot. So when it happened, you know, it was on a Sunday morning uh, at the racetrack in Morden and, uh 
you know, yeah, it was, it was, I guess I was on the phone at seven in the morning on Monday calling contractors and clients and people oh and, my and juggling my Taking staff. care of business. Yeah. Well, you know, cause the world doesn't stop turning just because you're laid up in a hospital bed. And, you know, because I, because I had had so many injuries before, you know, not anything anywhere near that severe clearly, but because I'd had so many accidents and so many injuries and I had been in the hospital more than once before, I just, you know, I, I honestly, I think I deflected from how bad it was for quite some time just to yes, deal with yeah. everything that was going on. Um, yeah. It, like, did it take you a while almost to come yeah, to turn, like to, to truly um, understand, not just intellectually, but like, whoa, like all over <laughs> what this was going to mean for the rest of your life? Yeah, it was for me, it was about a week after uh, my injury after the, I guess about a week after my surgery, they like with uh, the way they work nowadays is they put in uh, supporting rods and screws and things along mm -hmm, those lines. Mm -hmm. And yeah. that gives you structure immediately so they can start the physio process faster. Uh, they used to put you in back brace and make you wait three months for everything to heal up before they'd really start working with you. So basically a week or a week, just after a week or so, I was brought out of my bed into the physio uh, clinic on the floor in the hospital for the first time. And uh, the, the physiotherapist said to me, uh, yeah, so today, you know, the goal is we're going to get you to transfer over onto the bed there on the table. And, um, you know, we're going to get you to see if we can get you to sit up and hold yourself up. And it was that kind of that exact moment. I was there with my girlfriend at the time. And, and you know, like a week earlier, I was in front of 20 guys whipping my 250 pound dirt bike over an 80 foot tabletop. And now this week I have to try to sit up and hold myself up. And that's kind of when all the, the bricks came crashing down for lack of a better term. And then the waterworks started and I think I was in tears for the better part of that whole, after that whole, for sure, that whole therapy session and the whole next day. And, you know, the, yeah. it just is kind of, that's, that's the moment that it sort of hit for me. It was about a week or so after my injury. So. And because you were complete, there was, kind of no question very early on, like they put the rods in and, and that was it? Or did you hold out some hope that there would still be some return of function? Yeah, like that, That I think that surgery is like just the go-to. Like if you have a mm -hmm. ruptured vertebrae, they mm -hmm. need to do that to fix you, whether you're incomplete or like, you know, have very, very, like very little loss of sensation. Either way, that's how they support that uh, injured vertebrae. So I think the surgery was kind of a, like, this is what's going to happen. And then everything else was just depends how your body, how bad the injury is and how your body is going to react and, you know, how much swelling is there and all these things that might impact, you know, the pressure on the spinal cord. Um, but right. you know, and I, and I think that made it a little bit definitive for me. So like I was kind of holding out hope, you know, like, okay, two months, three months is kind of the timeline they say for swelling. And so when mm -hmm. like that three month mark came and nothing had changed, I mean, at all, I was like, okay, well, this is it. And then, and then I, like, I, I hear a lot of conversations. I've heard some other people tell their story and, you know, there, there's apparently like a, you know, you go through depression and anger and all these different all the things. stages of grief. Yeah. yeah. And I I don't think I did that. Like I I feel like I kind of just fast forwarded it to the end, kinda, you know, just because I was like, okay, well, it is what it is. Then I guess we just figure out how to do this like this and we just move on. And 
And I think part of that was because it was, you know, self-inflicted for lack of a better term. I think if I was in a car accident or if I got hit by a drunk, Mm -hmm. something like that, you would sort of have someone to point a finger at and maybe have lay blame and be angry at and, uh, you know, perceived injustice of it all. Yeah, exactly. So for me, it's like, well, I mean, there's no value in being upset with myself and beating myself up. I can't, you know, the damage is done. I can't go backwards. So, you know, what do you do? Right. And I just sort of picked up and went on. That's a really interesting point. Yeah. There's no good age for this to happen to anybody, but the one value of being in your forties is you have some of that perspective and maturity, I think to, yeah, to bounce in the way that you did potentially. Well, and, and I, and I, like, that's what I felt. I thought, oh, you know, I think maybe perspective's a little better because I'm a little more, a little older, you know, and I've lived this life. And so I can say, okay, well, that life's done. So now this is 2.0 and what's this going to look like? And, and the, my physiotherapist at the time said, well, usually it's the other way around. And I'm like, well, what do you mean? He goes, well, usually young people just bounce back because they don't really know a whole lot different. And I guess people that are older, you know, they've now got to say goodbye to the life that they know and to start over again is a lot more difficult. And I was like, oh, like, geez, I would have thought that was the opposite, you know, just from a, from a maturity perspective, you know, and, but apparently that's not the trend. So interesting. So tell us what, sorry, what your rehabilitation process was like, where were you and what were your experiences as you went through rehab? Um, so I was at HSC in Winnipeg. I started off on the, I guess the uh, brain uh, trauma ward. So up on, I guess the fifth floor there or whatnot. And yeah, like, you know, you do daily, like once you get to a point where you can get out of bed and stuff, you start to do like the daily physiotherapy. Uh, they were coming to me for the first week. I started going into the clinic after that. Um, and then, you know, you'd see OT. So you do like one hour of physio per day with the PT and then one hour of OT. And that was basically the, the, the inpatient uh, rehab that I experienced when I was there. I was there for a week short of three months. Uh, they were trying to kick me out at like uh, about, about two months in a week. They were kind of like, I think maybe you could go home. And I was like, it's really odd because at first nobody ever wants to be in the hospital. Like it's the last place that you want to be. And those first couple of weeks are like, I do not want to be here. I want to get out of here. But then as like time goes by and you start spending like you're there for the length of time that you are there, it all of a sudden turns into like a safe space that gets harder to want to leave. And, you know, for me, I knew that I didn't have my driver's license. So if I went home, uh, like I'm by myself. So if I go home, there's no one around. I can't just wheel down to the gym and go do a little bit of working out in the afternoon or, you know, wheel into the cafeteria and go get a coffee or whatever the deal is. You're, you know, I don't have any mode to get around at home because my license was taken away. So I'm like, I really wasn't in a big hurry to go home, you know? Well, and did you have to do any modifications on your home to make it accessible? There, yeah, a few things. Like I, I, I live in a, a, a bungalow. So I just had to build a small ramp to get in the back door. And then uh, my bathroom upstairs wasn't big enough to accommodate uh, everything that I needed to do in there. But fortunately I had already renovated my whole home and it's almost like I knew I was going to do this to myself because mm. I've got all this space around my Island and everything's set up to be like, it works really well for me. Uh, and the basement bathroom is huge and I had a stand-up shower in there. So I just had to get the shower tiled so that it was finished. And then I had to get a lift to take me downstairs. So 
the ramp and the lift and you know we got that turned around in about a week so it, it wasn't that wasn't a huge delay for me but I just wasn't in a huge hurry to get home because I knew as soon as I got home it was going to be like okay well I'm here all day and you know I didn't know how long it was going to be before I could drive again so Right. So at the at the just over two month mark, they were starting to make their plans for yeah. for your discharge. And you were kind of right. like, oh, but I'm so comfortable here. Yeah. So what happened after? Like, did you just go from Health Sciences Center to home or did you do another rehab stint in between? No, I, I went from Health Science Center to home. Like the problem that I had was I got a bladder infection uh, when I was still in the hospital, like within the first two weeks. So there's a whole nother conversation there that we could get into, but I don't want to get too far off topic. So I got a bladder infection that rolled into a bladder infection again, and then another one. And then finally they determined that I had a super bug, uh, which was the bladder infection was like a super bug in my bladder. And so then I was had to be put into isolation at the hospital oh, because wow. of this super bug. So when I did get discharged, which was part of why I, I went when I did, because they kind of had me like off on my own and wouldn't let me go anywhere anyways. And I'm like, well, I might as well go home now. So, um, so anyways, I, I got home and unfortunately that bladder infection problem uh, persisted. So <clears throat> I did like a couple of rounds of IV antibiotics, like I did the first stint. So I got home in September. And they, they put me on an IV antibiotic for, I think it was for six, four weeks or five weeks. And then it didn't work. That took us like close to Christmas-ish, somewhere in there. And then uh, we tried again after Christmas and we did like another, I think it was like a seven-week IV. And then we did like a nine-week IV after that. And then, and that wasn't really clearing it up. And then they found that I had some kidney stones. So we went and did, uh, remove my kidney stones. Cause I guess with the, when you stop using your legs all the time, you get a lot of calcium discharge, which tends to collect in the kidneys. So, uh, so I had to go in to get stones removed. And then when they did that, that was in about April of the following year. Uh, and when they did that, uh, that kind of cleared up the super bug. And then I didn't have a bladder infection, for about a month or so and then it came back but it was not as bad it was just good like enough for oral meds and then unfortunately I'm still to this day battling bladder infections chronically every day so yeah so that that's the thing out of all of this that probably has sucked the most because especially in that first year or so uh, like the impact of the bladder infections would wipe me out for like two three they days just make you feel crummy yeah. And now it's like, I guess either I feel crummy all the time and I've just gotten used to it or uh, it doesn't impact me quite as badly as it used to. But uh, yeah, I mean, like, I'm, like literally every three, four weeks I'm sending a sample in. So it's it's oh been... Like it's the worst part of the whole experience. So, well, and in in my research anyway on you, it it seemed like at one point or another you you wanted to extend the rehab, and there was nothing here in Winnipeg, right. and you ended up going to Regina at, at your own expense, right? It yeah, sounded like it sure. was not cheap, and you spent ten thousand dollars on on a rehab there. So, can you tell us a little bit more about that and how that experience led you to take some very admirable steps right here at home. Yeah, well, so I, I had uh, researched and found uh, first steps in Regina when I was in the hospital. And I wanted to go like right 
after I got out, you know, it was the goal. But then with the bladder infections I was having and all that was making it impossible for me to leave. Uh, so it wasn't till uh, I was lined up to go in April and that's when the kidney stone thing happened. So we got delayed again. Uh, so j I didn't end up getting to go until July. So I went to Regina for a week, uh, just like a Monday to Friday deal, drove out there, just stayed in a hotel um, and then drove back it just to, I wanted to see what it was all about before I made plans to really go and, and do like a long-term stint. And then I, you know, I really enjoyed my time there and the exercise and the work and everything that we were doing. Uh, and I decided, okay, well, I'm going to go give it a, a longer run. So I went back in September and I went for a month and yeah, the, the 10 grand was, you know, $3,000 plus in condo rental fees. Cause you know, to have a, washroom facility that's adequate for mm -hmm. me is I can't just rent any place, you know? So, uh, by the time I found something that was going to work and whatnot, this was three grand for the condo. And then the rest was all for therapy, but I was doing, you know, four hours a day of therapy with them. And then an hour on the FES bike after we were done. So I was in there for five plus hours a day for a month, I guess. And so you got to do a little bit more than just sitting up. I have, I yes, assume they challenged yeah, you a little bit more. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And I mean, you know, I was, a, I was a long way through it, uh, by then, like I'd already been training, uh, at HSC and, but yeah, we, we started doing, you know, all the, just a wide array of things and what we, they really did different was their primary focus was to focus on everything below the level of injury. Um, so, you know, the typical sort of uh, practice is, you know, you're broken here, everything functional is kind of what we work with. Uh, but first steps philosophy was to try to bring back some of that function that you lost below the break. So, you know, we did a lot because my, I have like about, I think I bought a half an ab on one side and like maybe a three quarters of an ab on the other. I'm a little stronger on one side than the other. And so we started with a lot of core work uh, and a lot of training to help stabilize myself in the core and try to push that injury level down. And then, you know, like I'm a big guy, so I'm 200 pounds, six, three. So even just to be like, you know, in a hands and knees in a crawling position to just hold my own body weight and, you know, for like push-ups or one thing, but to do like 30 seconds, 60 seconds, 90 seconds, 100, you know, like holding yourself up and trying to drag your body around, like my upper body was getting tired too. So like there was a natural training that was occurring for all the muscles that were all functional. So we really didn't need to focus on any of that stuff because just moving me around was enough work for, for right. the rest of my body. Right. So, so that kind of got the ball rolling. And then when I was there, this is about well, so a year and three months after my injury, my construction company was, you know, it was difficult because I was the, I guess the primary sales guy and the face. Uh, so when you can't get into people's homes to do quotes and, you know, reassure them on our quality of service and our work and everything else that we were doing. Uh, my closing rate went from 80% to like 20. So it, the, the wheels were slowly coming off of that wagon anyways. And when I was out uh, in Regina, one of my main guys uh, gave me notice, he had a really good opportunity to come up and that was the kind of the writing on the wall for me. I knew that I was going to have to end that. The, the tool belt and the wheelchair were not a good fit. So, uh, yeah, so I had to, and so it, it just sort of, you know, like the, the, the bell went off or the light turned on or whichever way you want to say it. But, uh, I started talking to the executive director out in Regina about, you know, maybe, maybe this is my new 
path, you know, so it's kind of how it all started. Wow. So again, I suspect kind of an atypical reaction to breaking your back, losing your function, losing your business, employees quitting on you. A lot of people would just sit down and cry (laughs) and, you know, have a pity party. You did the proverbial making lemons out of lemonade and went, okay, I'm going to pivot. You know, the word pivot is so overused in this post-COVID, peri-COVID time right now. But literally, you just recognized an opportunity. Seems to me like, was it easily let go of your business or was there a little bit of a green process there too? Was that a little bit hard? Well, the, the the difficult thing for me was, as I had sort of progressed into that renovation business uh, through, I guess I, I was not in love with what I was doing before. And oh, okay. Okay. So the, the struggle day to day to be motivated in my late thirties to, I had, I was running an IT business for about 15 years and I it's a weird way that I got involved in that because I really didn't have an IT background, but you know, I was a little bit more of the front facing person in a small dial up internet service provider that we started when I was 21 or 22. And, and then that sort of rolled into this larger business and partners and people. And I just, along that track, I discovered that job satisfaction was something that was far more important to me uh, than I had really realized. And so working off of spreadsheets and things, uh, as opposed to, you know, in an eight hour day, seeing what we built that day, or, you know, just the accomplishment, uh, the visual accomplishment that I would get through the work I was doing. That was what was very difficult for me to kind of let go of because uh, Mm -hmm. I had just kind of found that, I guess, happy place uh, after years of being sort of miserable in what I was doing. And then now, you know, potentially losing that again, was probably more, it wasn't so much about losing the business. It was more so about losing that avenue uh, that gave me quite a bit of, uh, I guess, joy, satisfaction for for lack of a better term. So uh, that was the bigger challenge was like, okay, well, now I'm losing this thing that provides me so much joy. So, and, and the work itself. And so I'm like, well, what do, like now what am I going to do? Right. So um, yeah. And then that's kind of how the pivot went. I guess you could say. And, and it li- literally it was like with a, the, the afternoon, my guy gave me notice the next morning I was in the executive director's office going like, so, so, so what about one of these in Winnipeg? <laughs> okay. So let's talk a little bit more about the first steps wellness center that you founded in Winnipeg. Tell us more about it. Where is it? You've already told us a little bit about what made the Regina location unique. In what way did you make your location unique in Winnipeg? Well, there, uh, unfortunately, you know, the reason that I got led to Regina is there, there wasn't anywhere that offered focused neurological rehabilitation in Winnipeg. So uh, lots of physiotherapy clinics, lots of ortho physiotherapists around, you could find them everywhere. Uh, everywhere. You know, you, you know, sorry guys, but you know, there's no, a lot of true. that, there's a lot of that, <laughs> but there wasn't really any neuro focused. And so that's what originally led me to Regina. So uh, you know, and I'm sitting there going, well, like there's 200 and some odd thousand people in Regina and three quarters of a million plus in Winnipeg. How is this not feasible in Winnipeg? I mean, you know, so we, so that, that's kind of how it started for me was like the feasibility of it and the scale and then doing a little more research as to, you know, like who would be competition here and 
really. There, there really wasn't anything. Yeah. So, so that's, uh, so that as an entrepreneur, from an entrepreneurial perspective, that's like the exact thing that you would look for ever in any opportunity is there's a gaping hole. Let's fill the hole. Cause usually 100% it's market share. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. Like usually it's like how much of the pie do we have to split here and how hard do we have to fight for, for business? And, and this was just like glaringly obvious for me. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it, it, it definitely hasn't been as easy as I, not easy, but I guess uh, COVID certainly did not make things easier. That's, wow. I figured I had 20 years of business experience. I've seen it all. And then, and then we have a global pandemic. So. Right. Yes. But you set up your business. Yeah. It's a charitable organization, correct? correct. Yes. It's a registered charity. Yes. So without going too much down the, you know, accounting rabbit hole, yep. what's yep. the general structure of First Steps Wellness? Well, so I, like a little bit of the backstory on that was like the exercise therapy model for spinal cord injury is still not uh, widely accepted by everybody that's in the neuro industry, uh, doctors and, and uh, you know, even physio and stuff along those lines. So, Which is um, mind blowing to me, but anyways. Yeah. Well, uh, from a guy on the outside, I was even more mind blown by that because I, you know, I have very, very limited experience in the health industry. And so to see this glaring hole and, you know, the amount of people per year that still have spinal cord injuries in Manitoba and there had never been anything to facilitate any long-term care or not care, but rehabilitation, like, yeah, it, it kind of blew my mind. And so mm-hmm. part of, part of the, the, I guess the concept or the, the, the idea to be a nonprofit was to, to dispel any of the snake oilists. Like we're not doing this to take money from people. We're not snake oiling it up and taking advantage of the vulnerable and all of the things that I had heard, uh, even speaking to people that's, that those are questions that were posed to me from people that work in the industry here. And it's just like, you know, like even their attitude was like, wow. And this is what, you know, you guys do this for a living and you're still, you know, balking at it. So that was a big part of why we went uh, and, you know, chose to continue because we followed the model that Regina had, but that's a big part of why that, you know, at the end of the day, the goal is to help people and it wasn't about making money. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, I, I mean, I, don't get me wrong. I got a paycheck again. I have a job again, but I mean, the, the ultimate goal here was to provide services for myself and everybody else who might be able to enjoy those services as well. So it was, uh, you know, it was kind of a no brainer to stick with the the charitable side of things. Uh, It sort of took some of that, you know, you're doing it for the money uh, argument that some people were throwing out. It took that off the table, you know, seeing that there was still so much controversy in the industry here. So which in and again is interesting to me because there's so many facets of healthcare that like it or not, are privatized now in Canada, like physiotherapy is one of them. I mean, it's not covered by government, you know, by the the government at all in Manitoba or anywhere else in Canada, really, unless you meet certain very specific low-income criteria. The reality is there are many paramedical professionals that do profit off of pain. (laughs) But at the same time, nobody gets rich off it. And um, we are all doing it to genuinely help others. So it seems to me like there's still a 
a little bit of an evolution that has to happen in the neuro rehab area to make it okay to actually provide services for people and pay your bills at the same time, which is kind of sad. <laughs> well, and, and, you know, the, the uphill battle for us is the, you know, a large majority of spinal cord injuries are vehicles, uh, automobile accidents, mm-hmm, a large mm-hmm. majority of them are WCB claims. So all of those people, you know, these insurance providers have absolutely no interest in paying for exercise therapy. Uh, quality of life after a catastrophic injury is not something that is in anyone's mindset at the insurance companies. You know, it's uh, it's definitely not where they want to put their money. And, uh, you know, it's there, you know, we're making good grounds in Saskatchewan, uh, working with the, I guess, SGI in Saskatchewan and WCB and Blue Cross. They've had some really They've made some good inroads and they've shown um, the benefit to the exercise therapy and how it's provided an increased quality of life for some people. And, you know, that the hard part there is, is the understanding that, you know, I think the misconception with the industry, with the exercise therapy business is that uh, most people feel like, you know, we're selling a, if you spend enough time and money with us, we'll get you walking. And I mean, that's just simply not the case as a guy who sits in the wheelchair, really hard for me to pitch that one. So, you know, then that was, I think, a lot of the, the pushback that we got from the mainstream um, uh, therapists that we ran into here in Winnipeg was that, you know, it's like, that's this is that cash grab thing, right? And mm-hmm. so the idea with that was just that, you know, we wanted to avoid kind of that stigma and uh and to try it now we're we're actually just in the process of potentially bringing physiotherapy into first steps as an option uh, because we've just found that uh, when you're speaking to a physiotherapist and you're not a physiotherapist whatever you say to them has no water because you're you don't have their level of education and that seemed to be what we were up against oh uh, okay with MPI with uh, with WCB we like we had a client that was shut down from coming to us because they didn't feel that we were capable of transferring him safely from his chair to a therapy table and they told him if they drop you uh, we won't cover you anymore so i mean and that was wow. his phys- his physiotherapist told him that Right. So I'm like, okay, well, that's, you know, that guy was looking to go and get some exercise in his life. And he was a pretty low functioning quadriplegic and really could use some type of activity, any type of activity. And they, you know, I mean, and it got sort of shut down. So what do you have for professionals there at the center right now? What types of staff do you have? So I was fortunate um, that we have a quite a unique blend. Uh, I think when word kind of got out in the neuro world here that we were looking to open something, I had several people reach out to me. Uh, and so uh, Mylena is our, our one of our one of the first people that I spoke to and she runs our children's program. Uh, she's from Brazil. Uh, she's she basically ran a clinic very similar to First Steps down in Brazil for I think closer to 20 years. Uh, but of course, when you move to Canada, your certification doesn't follow you and you have to recertify to be able to provide those services here in Canada. Um, so she is still qualified to provide the TheraSuit treatment that we do in our children's program. Uh, so she's she's one of the therapists that works with us. 
Uh, and then we have uh, another uh, lady that was introduced to me, Anaprita. Uh, so she was trained formally in, uh, in India and she's got her four-year degree there. And then she came to Canada and has completed her master's and her PhD in physiotherapy and is still not certified to practice physiotherapy here in Manitoba, even with all that. Uh, yeah, we and, won't go there. Yeah, <laughs> Things are changing in the profession, thank goodness. But there's been a big void there for a long time in certifying physiotherapists in Canada. Yeah. yeah. But the bottom line is, and then we have a lady that we've just recently hired uh, that is actually as well a trained physiotherapist from Columbia uh, that's been in Canada for, I think, four years now. And she's in the process of getting her recertification done for physio practice. So she's working as one of our aides. And then uh, the majority of our, uh, like in Saskatchewan, everybody has got their bachelor of kinesiology, their BKIN, and their CSEP. And so that's okay. uh, Jonas is one of our other uh, exercise therapists and he's uh, his BKIN and he's working on a CSEP right now. So, so yeah, so, I mean, we've got a, a, a pretty wide range and that's kind of where I'm fortunate in the sense that I have uh, very, very qualified people who are unfortunately uncertified to practice, but can do exercise therapy here and have a, you know, a base of knowledge that uh, perhaps goes far beyond what most exercise therapists would have. So, yeah. Yeah. So is it predominantly then the ex like, I mean, there's so much science to support exercise therapy, like alone, yes. right? But yes. is there anything else you, you know, you've mentioned spinal cord injuries. So you're seeing people with spinal cord injuries. What other neurological injuries do you see it with the patients that come through and what other therapies besides exercise therapy, if any, are you delivering currently? So exercise therapy is, is the only protocol that we are capable of delivering at this point in time, uh, licensed to deliver for lack of a better term. Uh, so the physio, that's why I say we're looking to potentially uh, partner with a physiotherapist so that we can start offering those services as well, because I think it'll open a lot of doors for us. We treat uh, a lot of stroke recovery. Uh, we have clients with MS, uh, CP, uh, children, their children's program is, is 95% based around children with CP, but majority of the clients that come through right now are still spinal cord injury. They probably make up about 60, 60 to 70%. Um, but we've, we've had really, really good like recovery from stroke and, and clients that have really made some tremendous progress through that area. So we're starting, you know, as you have one good story gets passed around, mm -hmm. you know, you start to get two or yes. three more phone calls. And so, so there's a lot, you know, every, every one of those facets brings in uh, some more basically uh, clients for us from each of those different areas. So, yeah. And as you say, in the hospital, the primary focus is like, let's get you good enough to go home, right? And right. often the therapy sort of ends there. And we all know that there is just so much more that can be done beyond just I can function and get dressed and go to the bathroom and whatever else may be like your basic activities of daily living. There is just so much more that can be done through exercise and an ongoing progressive um, exercise therapy program that's designed for you can just be just so incredibly valuable, but we just don't always have the resources. So I think what you've done is just absolutely admirable and fantastic. And how can we support the work that you're doing? You said it's a charitable organization or a nonprofit. Tell us more if anyone's loving what they're hearing and wants to support you. Yeah, well, we, uh, like, for example, this winter in Winnipeg, well, in Winnipeg and Saskatchewan, we're doing a fundraiser. You know, I wanted to try to 
I guess to pick an event or to create an event that um, really amplified the importance of exercise therapy. So I wanted to, you know, and you start to think of like, well, what are the things that you could do? And, oh, well, maybe you could run your hand cycle across Canada. And I'm like, I'm 46 years old and I am far from uh, a long distance cross Canada (laughs) athlete here, Uh, you know, and then it's like, well, what else can I do? And it's like, well, so I'm, you know, I've always been a motorsport guy. And so I, I really enjoyed snowmobiling and we were looking to do like a winter fundraiser and to kind of follow some of the other like you know team challenge does a a very uh, good fundraising ride in the winter and raises a tremendous amount of money through that and uh, that's what we were looking to do is i wanted to do like an awareness campaign where we where i was going to ride my snowmobile around manitoba and you know maybe like go to some schools and talk to some kids or or you know just the whole thing right go around and, and just w- raise awareness a that we're here and b that there are options and, and things along those lines and then you know uh, it, i think it was december and it's like oh everything is locked down and so there's no going to schools there's no meeting like you couldn't even meet 10 people right so um all the snowmobile shelters were locked because they didn't want anyone yes, to gather in right. them and and then on top of it, they closed all the restaurants. So, you know, we were, it was December and we're trying to determine. So we wanted to do a raffle. Uh, so, you know, we had sort of designed, we're going to give away a snowmobile, a bunch of other prizes from FXR and all this stuff. And, you know, we're going to sell tickets and I'm going to ride around and we're going to raise awareness. And then it became impossible to raise awareness because like other than, you know, I had to get, I guess, media exposure, because I couldn't invite people out and we couldn't do any real group sort of awareness rides to help spread the word, you know? So, so it became kind of a, like a Terry Fox kind of deal where it was like, okay, well, you know, like I, you're not going to get any press from man casually ride snowmobile around Southern Manitoba with wheelchair. <laughs> so it was like, how do we, how do we kind of structure this thing so that we'll get a little bit of some, you know, and, and you know, in all fairness, like we're marketing primarily to snowmobilers and people that enjoy the other activities, right? It's not like, it's not a, you know, I mean, it's for anyone, but you know, that was kind of our target market. And uh, you know, I figured, well, if it's going to be that market that we're going to go after, then I have to do something that makes those folks go, Oh, wow. And so we decided to try to do 5,000 kilometers around Southern Manitoba in 13 days in an effort to sell 5,000 tickets. So basically one, one raffle ticket per kilometer was the goal. Okay. That became the, the, personal challenge for me to be able to accomplish between 380 and 420 kilometers per day on a snowmobile um, and uh, be able to it's one thing to be able to do that but it's another thing to be able to do that 13 days in a row without freezing your toes which you can't feel yeah so. <laughs> was that a bit of a challenge or did you pick a time of year when it was quite warm yeah. no it was like <laughs> like the very first day 37 below, like literally the first day. So we had booked it because usually for us, like, you know, you never know in January what snow conditions are going to be, but by February, whatever we're going to get, we got the majority of it. And, uh, and then, you know, you, if you push past the end of February, you never know it could rain. So, you know, that's kind of the window. If I'm going to plan, it's got to be within that mid to end of February at the latest. 
to get the best snow conditions. And unfortunately last year it didn't snow. So no. all the trails south of Highway 1 were closed. So a week before the, the trip, not only is everything locked down and shut down, but now half the trails are not open because we didn't have enough snow. So we're rejigging the route and we can't go north of the 53rd parallel because then we have to quarantine because that's, you know. So right. it was like, yeah, so it was a bit of a gong show. But Oh, um, my goodness. We had the people lined up, um, you know, we had kind of like I had a film crew that we had, uh, we got funding to come with us so that we could do video updates and, and try to get some really good footage. And because that's really all we had was, you know, promote on social media, try to spread the word. Uh, Snowman Manitoba was very, very kind and sharing all of our posts to their web page and, and, you know, promoting to all the members from Snowman. So, you know, we, we really did get some real, you know, great support. Uh, which was what made it possible. We didn't quite reach our goal, but we sold about 2,500 tickets. And, uh, you know, all in all for, for you know, the, the state of the world that we were in and uh, having to juggle the, the plans and the changes that happened with the lockdowns and everything else, I was, I was really happy with uh, the outcome that we had. So, um, so yeah, so, it, you know, if, if you're looking to support right now in Manitoba, you could buy raffle tickets. Uh, for a chance to win a brand new 2020 player snowmobile, a 22 player snowmobile, pardon me. Um, and if you're in Saskatchewan as well, you can buy tickets. Uh, the raffle is will be live. We're waiting on lotteries, Saskatchewan. They're a little bit slower out there. So they're coming. Hopefully in the next couple of days, we'll be able to sell raffle tickets for the lottery in Saskatchewan, where we're also giving away the exact same snowmobile. Uh, otherwise, if you're anywhere else in the country or in the world, you can just go to firststepswellnesscenter.ca and you can donate straight through our website. So we'll make sure we link that up in our show notes for you for sure. So you've talked about how you seem to have an inclination for endurance type of activities on a snowmobile and uh, you didn't mention it, but I know you do offer training for elite Paralympic athletes at your First Steps Wellness Center as well. I also know that you have done the Manitoba Marathon, not once, not twice, but three times. So let's, you know, this is a running podcast by nature, and we have to talk about the Manitoba Marathon on this podcast. So tell us a little bit about Paralympic sport and your involvement with that and your experience at the marathon. Well, my, my exposure to Paralympic sport uh, occurred when I was in Regina. Um, one of the, uh, the the ladies that they train there, Jessica, is uh, she competes in the wheelchair racing for and Team Canada. So uh, they really have a great program in Regina. We haven't really uh, expanded into a para training program here yet in Winnipeg. I was having a conversation today with somebody that said there's almost no representation of para sport athletes coming out of Manitoba. So that's, I think, a big reason why we haven't had uh, anyone training with us. Uh, but that rolled into, I guess, to, to go into the, the Manitoba Marathon portion of it. Um, yeah, when I was when I was first hurt, <laughs> I had bought a, a brand new mountain bike the year of the spring that I injured my so broke my back, and so I had this bike that I'll never sell. I'll have it till I die. This is the only. It's, best bike I'll ever need. And of course I used it for like three months and then it was uh, up for sale. So I bought a hand cycle pretty much immediately. Um, Unfortunately, again, there's nowhere to find or look at or fit or try a hand cycle 
Um, and I was exposed to that when I was in Regina as well. They happen to have a program there where they have a couple of bikes out in Wiscana and you can go and borrow them and ride on a hand cycle and stuff. So I did that and really enjoyed that and was, you know, I thought, okay, well, uh, this, this is something that I really need to try to do. So I, I had already ordered a bike uh, for the first year that was that came in, I guess, in April. Uh, you, you bought it off the internet. Don't get to try it out. Don't get to see if you fit in it. And being 6'3", there's always the, there's lots of places I didn't fit typically, you know. So, um, so yeah, bike showed up and I, I, I'm big on giving myself uh, a reason to train uh, because of the racing and stuff. I always had a, I'm getting ready for the season thing. And I always find it really difficult for me to just, train for the benefit of healthy living it's like well now i need a goal like you know what is it what am i training for there's gotta there's gotta be that thing right and so Mm -hmm. i thought okay well um the bike showed up like mid to late april and the marathon's mid-june so i had like six weeks and i was like well you know do i want (laughs) to you know so i started and i found out that you can ride hand cycles in the marathon so that was like oh okay well geez that man, man maybe i got something that i could like maybe we can focus on doing that so so you didn't wheel the wheelchair with the your hands on the wheels you used the correct. hand cycle to propel correct. yourself okay yes correct so um so yeah six weeks i i entered the first one and uh it was a disaster i mean i was <laughs> i was nowhere near um you know like you just don't use your upper body in in from an endurance perspective like that you know like you know when you run you train your legs when you bike you train your legs there's there's really nothing that you do that in like that brings your upper body into that level of endurance training right uh so that first couple weeks i mean i could ride for five minutes and i was gassed and then take a break and go again and go again so I knew when I entered the marathon, it was not going to be any uh, record-breaking <laughs> times that I was going to put up. But, um, you know, that was c- kind of part of it for me is like just sort of to put that first time down and then I could use that as a benchmark for something that I wanted to beat for the next year, you know. And that was that was basically the only reason I did it. And, I mean, the, the time was – it was brutal. Like I was – I got lost. I was so far behind. I, I made a wrong turn because I was so exhausted. And I didn't see the arrow sign. And so I kind of, I lost, I figure I lost about 10 minutes and just getting myself sorted out that day. And then, but I came in at about three hours for my time for the full marathon there. And I mean, I was, I was whipped when it was over, yeah. but uh, yeah, but you know, the, the following two years got better, considerably better. So like when you're talking about um, we don't use our arms like that, really mm-hmm. ever right and it's so true and I and if you're listening to this like just try to pedal your arms around like if you get yourself on they sometimes have those like arm ergometers at a gym or something it's mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. do that for five minutes and like come back and let's have a conversation because it is hard and you don't get the blood flow right to your upper body the way that you can get blood flow to the lower body so I think it was like an incredible undertaking that you even decided to do it in that first year with that six weeks of training. But I understand that, you know, you came back the next year and you came back the next year. And from that first year to the third year, you took almost an hour off your time and you were down in the low two hours. Is that right? Tell us a little bit about kind of the evolution of your uh, performances at the Manitoba Marathon. 
like a lot of it kind of stems from when, when you, uh, like with a spinal cord injury, I'm right at the level that you may or may not be able to sweat properly or in the way that you used to sweat. So any, any higher than my break is almost a guarantee that you're not going to have normal sweating. Uh, and you know, a lot of the guys that I know when they go down South, they water bottle because they don't perspire. So yeah. I was very concerned, obviously that I was not going to be able to sweat. Cause I think most of us kind of use sweat as a benchmark of a good workout. You know, if you, if you, if you're not sweating, you're not working hard enough. Right. So, mm -hmm. uh, that's the other thing that's incredibly difficult is because of the lack of blood flow, uh, the difficulty to get your heart rate up and maintain that heart rate long enough with the muscle group so that you can actually get yourself, your core temperature up high enough to start sweating. I mean, oh, it was, it was literally a year to the day. So the day that I broke my back one year later was the first time that I actually got a sweat on and it was on my hand cycle. So I had had it for about a month or been riding for about a month and it would turn to be like 30 some degrees that day. And we did a, like an 18 kilometer was like the longest that I had gone. I have a, a trail near my place here that you go back and forth so many times, you know, you get, so I, I got like 18 K in and I came back and my buddies, I said, I said, I think I'm sweating. And he says like, lean forward. He goes, your back's all wet. And I'm like, I must be sweating. Then, you know, and I was so excited about it, you know, but you know, I can't feel so much of myself that it's like, like the shirt's wet. I'm like, Oh, well, it's not wet where I can feel it. So, you know, it's like, uh, I was so just so happy to get that first sweat in and then, uh, yeah. And then, you know, I continued to train, um, from, uh, you know, after the first one, I, I, you know, I continued to train just at home and had personal trainers coming in and I just did all the normal like upper body training that I could within the, the muscle groups that I still had last. Um, and so I, I, I did cut my time pretty drastically. If I remember correctly, uh, geez, I don't even know what the number is now, but I think we took it from like an, uh, three hours down to like two twenty five maybe, or something like that. And then uh, the third year, I took it down to two hours and 10 minutes. And so uh, from a speed perspective, it's like 14.7 kilometers an hour was my average pace the first year. And then it was like 17.7. And then it was like 20.7. So the guy that normally, and I won that third year. So I was very excited about that because it was my first win. Uh, until I heard that the guy who normally wins had a mechanical air malfunction and had his emergency mm -hmm. park break halfway on for half of oh the marathon. Because the whole time I'm like, where is he? He's got to be coming up behind me. And the, the guy's like, no, man, there's no one coming. I'm like, he's got to be coming. And I and I, I got in because he usually goes in about one 155 is his time. And I was, I was sort of on track for just over two hours to two hours and 10. So I was, there, there's, he's got to catch me. There's, he's got to be catching me eventually. And, and I found out after that his break was on and I'm like, I'll take it. I don't care. There might be an yeah. asterisk beside it, but I'll take it anyway. And it, it so. served as sufficient motivation. It sounds like with you thinking that he was coming up at any second now that it kept you probably moving forward. Well, yeah. And the disheartening thing was I had a friend of mine who said, yeah, well you passed us. At, you know, she was running the half and she says, yeah, you passed us. And like, we heard you coming, you're huffing and puffing and you're 
tongue is on the ground. And, and then like about two minutes later, this other guy went by like he was on a Sunday cruise. He right by like he wasn't even breathing heavy. And I'm like, oh, man. Exactly. Like, I, uh, I think I had an average average heart rate of like 60, 167 beats or whatever for the two hours and 10. And I mean, I had really impressive to accomplish that with just your arms. So you mentioned some of those speeds and the RPMs, you know, when you're on a a cycle ergometer, you're producing the same RPMs that you are, would be with your legs, with muscle groups that are maybe a third less in size and and a shoulder joint that's not built necessarily it's not built to to do that so did you experience through over the three years that you did the training and the marathon did you experience any injuries any shoulder injuries or elbow uh, i have a shoulder problem that has occurred post that uh but i in that time frame i i hadn't i didn't have any trouble but i mean mm, again that's good you know using your shoulders like that was still new right and so now as mm-hmm. i'm getting a little bit more tenured into it I'm starting to get a little bit of uh, nerve damage in my left side because I'm getting carpal tunnel in my wrist and I guess whatever the equivalent of carpal tunnel is in my elbow. Uh, so I'm starting to lose some sensation in some of my fingers. And so I was, I saw the doctor this year and they're like, yeah, you're getting some nerve damage there. So, you know, there's some stuff now that the, I guess that like, I, you know, I, I wonder how people who get hurt young, like how they can make their body last the, you know, all the years, because I mean, I'm still young, relatively speaking, and I still have lots that I want to do and I want to be active and continue to do the things that I enjoy, but yeah, mm-hmm. I'm st- I'm, my body's starting to pay the price now. So not, not that, it, not that getting into this chair wasn't already paying a bit of a price, but you know, what's left is now starting to pay too. So, so. Well, I think that you raise a very important point that, you know, we all, only have so many years with these bodies and everybody's walking a different journey. But when you have limited function and you are now accomplishing tasks with less, right? You're having to, to propel yourself with muscle groups that weren't meant to do that and transfer yourself. And, you know, joints and muscle groups are doing double duty. Longevity is important and being very mindful of self-care. Well, I I couldn't tell you that I, Never in my life have I wished I was five foot five and 140 pounds, uh, you know, and, and now I'm like six, three two two fifteen, And I'm like, geez, like, could, you know, can I make this any harder on myself? Really? Like it's, yeah, right. that, that's another thing that's challenging, right? Is like, I'm not a, I'm not a little guy. So, uh, you know, my shoulders, you know, they're, they're going to have a lifespan to them and uh, I'm starting to, I'm starting to feel it a little bit already. And, so, yeah, you know. And so on that note, do you have aspirations of doing the Manitoba Marathon annually? Or are you thinking now more mm, from a longevity a perspective that it might be worthwhile to uh, extend the lifespan of your shoulder joints by maybe doing a little bit less? Well, I mean, I think uh, there's a lot of ways to train to build up for that marathon. I don't necessarily have to spend, uh, you know, 30 hours a week or to t- 10 hours a week in the hand cycle grinding out miles. Uh, you know, there's a lot of other ways that I can build up the strength that I need to do that. So I would still like to do it as kind of like just as that benchmark to A, now see as I get older, how badly it falls off, you know, or if I can still maintain <laughs> that level. Um, I have a really good buddy in town now that actually is dealing in hand cycles and stuff uh, called Prairie Velo Bicycles. And um, he is now creating his own line of hand cycles. So the one that I purchased, which is a fantastic bike, it's a little bit more of what I would 
compare it to being like a mountain bike as opposed to like a 10 speed uh, racer yeah. style. So I think that's a big part. I hope that's a big part in why it's more difficult for me to do the pace uh, than yeah. my competitors. Um, so I'm hoping that I might have an opportunity to ride a different bike that might be a little bit more inclined to like racing, mm-hmm. uh, which mm-hmm. would make life a little easier for me in that regard. So I would like to continue to do that. Uh, you know, COVID took a little toll. I, I just because of capacity numbers, like I basically wasn't allowed in my own clinic for like a year because me, my body in there put us over capacity numbers. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I've mm-hmm. like, I've had a pretty bad year and a half of kind of falling off the training and, you know, I'm probably 10, I got, I don't want to say I got 19 pounds of COVID, uh, the COVID-19 LBS, <laughs> but I've, I've definitely put a couple extra on for sure. So uh, yeah, yeah I, I'm, I'm in the process of training now. We've been back at the gym again and trying to get ready for the, the fundraising ride that we got coming up here in a couple of weeks. But yeah, my intent would be to, to once we get back to running proper, like a normal marathon, I, I don't really have much desire to do a remote marathon, you know? So yeah. uh, once we get back to actually running a marathon again, yeah, I, 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 you know, and part of the, you know, for me, I guess like the bigger picture that I saw was, you know, now we have all these folks that go through first steps and, um, you know, it would be great to get more people uh, excited about cycling and, and getting out on hand cycles. And, uh, you know, it'd be awesome. Like the first year that I entered the marathon, I mean, there was three people, there was me and two other people. And the, the one lady who told me about the, that she's a quadriplegic and she does the marathon, she kind of introduced the idea to me. Uh, and hand cycling to me actually uh and then there was the one other guy that i was gonna have to try to beat and there was the three of us and that was it so you know and with the amount of people in manitoba that are uh you know paraplegics or quadriplegics uh you know i just felt like that was a like a horrible representation of the community you know like yeah. it would be great if we had more people out and more people passionate about cycling and, and exercise mm-hmm. in general um, you know, I just, I, I feel like that's just something I feel like prior to my injury, I didn't really notice a lot of people with wheelchairs around, you know, disability wise, mm-hmm. like, you know, grocery, <laughs> grocery stores, restaurants, wherever it might be like very, very seldom did you see someone. And if you did, uh, usually they're elderly, you know? And so I, I, like, I still to this day wonder where everybody is, you know, like we right. don't, we don't have a direct phone book with everybody's name and number in it, you know, but the, like, they're just, I, I'm at Costco and I'm at Smitty's with my friends watching a game and having some wings. And, you know, I go and do pretty much all the same things that I used to do before, but I don't see anybody else out there doing any of that mm. stuff. And so, and I don't know if that's a physical conditioning thing, or if you, you know, when you go through a spinal cord injury, you have a tendency to get a little bit more withdrawn uh, just because the recovery process like throws you in your home for however many months. And I mean, even for me, I I found it a little bit difficult to kind of get back to normal socializing that you Mm -hmm. used to do before, because you kind of get used to being home. And then when the pandemic hit, everyone was like, oh, these lockdowns. I'm like, yeah, that's nothing. I spent like a year at home. It's like, you know, (laughs) you guys are whining about a couple of months. This is nothing. Go through a spinal cord injury. You'll laugh at this. Wow. You know, as you've been talking, the the quote that keeps coming into my mind is everything is impossible until you do it. Right. And, and that belief is just so, so important for anybody, whether it's in sport, whether it's in business, whether it's in recovery from an injury rehab. Um, you've certainly shared with us quite an amazing story, uh, Shane, and 
I know there's a lot of runners that listen to this podcast and non-runners, but you know, those days that my legs are kind of feeling a little tired and cranky and aching, I'm so thankful that I have them to use. But at the same time, you've, you've shown us, you've talked with us about how, you know, you can lose something, but you can replace it with something else and you can still have an amazing life, um, uh, you know, moving forward just in differently, just in a different way. So it's just a different. Yeah. It's yeah. just different. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So is there anything um, you in closing you want to leave our wis- listeners with? Anything else you'd like to share? Uh, no, I mean, I guess that kind of, that's the, the majority of my story. I mean, uh, mm-hmm. the, the website for the raffle tickets is encouragerecovery.ca. Uh, the website for First Steps Wellness Center, you can jump off of encouragerecovery.ca. That's our, our hashtag is encouragerecovery. Um, so yeah, if you, if you want to get involved and donate, buy tickets for the raffle, you can go to encouragerecovery.ca. Um, otherwise anything else is at first steps wellness center. But yeah, I think that's, we will certainly put all of that, all of the links to to everything in the show notes, but yeah, thank you again, Shane, for coming on the, the word that comes to mind for me is resilient. You've just been hit with challenge after challenge and every single time it sounds like you've risen to the occasion and and come through and there's just a lot of inspiration to be had in your story so thank you again for sharing it uh, with us tonight thank you very much for having me on